All right, all right. Come on, who's excited to be with your church family this morning? You excited to be with your church family? I love being with church family. How many excited being with your immediate family this week? <laughs> all right, yeah. Anybody got any crazy people in your family like me? Any crazy people in your family? So if you ain't raising your hand, it's because you're the crazy ones. All oh, y'all the crazy ones. Now we're excited about Thanksgiving, hanging out with our family. Hopefully you are too. We're in this series called Seven. Get your Bibles, go with me to Revelations chapter three. Man, been really enjoying walking through this. We have one more Sunday next week as we look at the church of Laodicea. Uh, but hopefully the Lord's been using this in your life and walking you through this. It's really been helpful for me. Just to, been good to study through the book of Revelation. Went through it on Wednesday nights together. If you missed that, man, I tell you what, you missed a great time as we walk through a lot of good prophecy that's taking place and how um, the Bible has predicted everything that's taking place around us. This is so, just so rich. Uh, so it's been really good. A lot of people want to stay away from the book of Revelation. Man, I might make it as part of my daily devotion and read it through it every once a month. Just read through it, man, because it is so, so good. Anyway, we're in the church of Philadelphia today. I have a picture I've shown you uh, since we started this series. And if you notice that you started with Ephesus and Smyrna, then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, Sardis, we did last week, and then Philadelphia, then Laodicea. Now, why is it in this order? Because this is the way the mail ran. This is the postal route. And so John's on an island, Patmos, and he has his vision from Jesus, and he pins the words down that we have now, the book of Revelation, and he copies them seven times, and he sends one to every single church, to every single church, and today we finally fall on Philadelphia. This is modern-day Turkey, by the way. You can go to all these seven cities and see the ruins of these churches. Philadelphia is probably one of the smallest ones because the whole city has built up around it, but they do have a monument in the middle of the pillars that are still there. But Philadelphia is not the Philadelphia that you know of, even though this is where it got its name from. In fact, this is the youngest of the cities. It's found in 180 BC, about 180 years before Jesus came on the scene, to two brothers, Eumenes and Atlas. Atlas had a nickname of Philadelphius which means he loves his brother, a love of a brother. And him and his brother were so tight, they loved each other so much that they named this city Philadelphia, meaning, come on, means what? Come on, brotherly love. That's right, so we know that. This is where that comes from, right here, from this dude right here, Atlas II, whose, name was Phil, whose nickname was Philadelphia, was brotherly love. Now, this city was to be planted to be a city for the Greek culture. It was a missionary city, not missionary what you and I think about today as far as advancing the gospel. They're to advance the Greek culture, which was called Hellenism. Now, the Hellenism, the Greek culture did not care how many gods you worship. You could worship Caesar, you could worship Zeus, Dionysus, you could even worship the Jewish God, doesn't matter, but we are part of our culture. So the purpose of this city was to be a gateway, a doorway to advance the Greek culture into all the eastern part of the world. And so they, 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 the city was um, positioned perfectly to do that. In fact, it was right in the middle of the gateway of the Hermas Valley. Now, the Hermas Valley, if you notice on that picture, you had Sardis and, and Thyatira up that way. If you notice that, that valley is on a fault line. There are earthquakes and tremors all the time in the western part of Turkey, and anything on the fault line grows good crops. We know that. And so their big thing was vineyards. They have grapes, even today, if you go, the valley is full of grapes. Now, the mythical gods, if you notice, the Alam had a lot of things in common. Wine and sexual morality. 
And so when you are worshiping the Greek gods or goddesses and there's wine, there's always sex morality and it was a time where the spirit, like, hey, you're worshiping the God in that spirit, that is the spirit of wine, drunkenness, and uh, sexual morality, you do your thing. That's what they all boasted about. So this city in the valley was a gateway and a doorway to advance this type of mythical gods, this, the, the, the culture of the Greeks, through all the known world. And so they had a real big challenge in front of them, but a real great big opportunity, because very important, because they were the door for the opportunity to share what the Greek culture would be. But we know this, what happened last week. And Sardis, remember Sardis? Small 25 acre city, most of us kind of know farmland. You may live on an acre, quarter acre, you may have 10 acres because you're, you know, whatever it may be. So you kind of be 25 acre city on top of a mountain, 17 AD, earthquake happens, 20 acres come flooding off that mountainside, killed thousands of people. And what was Acropolis, remember we talked about that? Now becomes a Necropolis, which means the city of the dead. The mountains collapsed on the villages below and buried hundreds and hundreds of people. On the same path, just 20 miles or so down the road as Philadelphia. And when 1780 happened, that earthquake, Philadelphia got smashed and destroyed as well. They went up on the mountain as far as Sardis was. They were kind of on the foothills of it. And all the people fled the city. In fact, today, you could even know there's tremors. People for the next several, several years, they felt tremors all the way through that fault line. So people were afraid to go back into the temple to worship because they thought the city would fall on them. They didn't wanna go back around the buildings because the city might fall on them. So they moved out into the plains, they moved out into the farmlands, and they stayed there. Now what remained in the city were the pillars. Somehow they built these pillars to be kind of earthquake shock resistant. They had, so when you look at all these pictures, everything's ruined except these big tall pillars are still standing there. But they were afraid the pillars may fall, so they left the, they left the synagogue. They left the, the, the city and they went in and out and they tried to make the way around. Again, that's very important to know. So when the earthquake hits, guess what happens? FEMA comes in, right? That's what we think. FEMA comes in, so it's a national disaster. So they went to they appeal to Caesar, Tiberius, and said, oh, wise Caesar, would you do us a favor? Caesar said what? Would you halt us from not paying taxes until we could take the money to rebuild the city? And, and, and Caesar Tiberius says, you know what? That's a great plan. In fact, you don't have to pay taxes for a while, but I'm gonna give you an economic stimulus package, and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna give you money to rebuild your city. Well, Philadelphia lost their mind. Oh my goodness, Caesar Tiberius would come and he would give money to our city. I tell you what we should do, we should rename the city. And they did, to, to, they renamed it to the new Caesar. It was new Caesarea, Neo Caesarea. It's the new Caesar city. Let's build a temple, they built a temple to Caesar there and they changed the name of the city. And so everything was great, they started paying taxes again and everyone eat, drink, be merry, life was good. All the way until Nero, became the leader. And Nero said, I don't like the name Nero Caesarea. Let's change it back to Philadelphia. So they flip-flopped back and now they become Philadelphia. And now you, as a person who lives there, you, you went through two name changes from two different cities, again, which is very important. Well, we know Vasperin and Titus Flavians are now the leaders, and they said, we wanna name the city after us and call it Flavia. And so now they changed the name, watch this, to back from Philadelphia to Flavia. This was a community who had no identity. Who are you? 
What city do you belong to? What's the name? Hey, where do you live? Well, man, I used to live in Flavia. Now I live in Philadelphia. But then it was you know, the new Caesarea. Now we went back to Philadelphia. I don't even know. What we put on the mail? I mean, I don't even know what to put, like, my address, because I don't know. That's the mindset. So they lived in a culture that was unstable and uncertain because they had no idea which God caused the earthquake to destroy the land. We must have made the gods mad or the earthquake would not have happened. That's the mythical thinking of that point of that time. We can't go into the city because we're uncertain if it will hold, the pillars may fall on us because they're not strong enough. And on top of that, we don't know if a new leader is gonna come in and change the name because we don't even know who we are, so we have identity crisis. So if you are living in that city, this is what's taking place. This is what you have been through. And then all of a sudden, you're a small church. And the pastor gets together and he calls you and says, you're not gonna believe this. They're like, what? We've got a letter from King Jesus. So the congregation gets, to get, gets together. The pastor takes the letter. He opens up the letter. He reads what Jesus said to all the churches because he has the whole book of Revelation in his hand, by the way. So he reads chapter one and he gets to chapter two and he hears about Ephesus who lost the first love. He goes to Smyrna, the persecuted church, and then he goes up to Pergamum, who's like the Satan throne of Satan. I mean, he's creating the Thyatira, and then Sardis, and now he reaches his church. So his congregation listens, says, we're the church of Philadelphia. Jesus wrote us a letter, and he opens up, and that's what we pick up in verse seven. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that this is one of the only two churches, there's only two churches out of seven, that Jesus didn't condemn them. In fact, I will go as far as say this. If we had to become any of these churches, I'd hope and pray that our church would become the Church of Philadelphia, that we would be like this church. There's no condemnation whatsoever. There's only applause and, and affirmation of what God's doing in their life, and I would hope and pray that this would type of church that we would, we would become. And look what he says in verse seven. To the angel of the church, real quick, if you haven't been with us, angel, Greek word, means messenger. Messenger in the context is the pastor. So he wrote a letter to the pastor to share with the churches, the house churches in Philadelphia. So when he says to the angel of the church, he's talking, we send it to the pastor, literally means messenger, to share to the church of Philadelphia. He says this, he who is holy, of course this is Jesus through John speaking, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts but no one opens, says this. Man, this is so rich, this is so good. Every single opening to the letter, Jesus speaks right to the culture. He speaks to right what's going on, he speaks to right to their circumstances, right? Remember when Thyatira, they thought, we're the sword of Caesar, live by the sword, die by the sword. He goes, my mouth is the sword. You remember that? We, we get that. He's speaking right to them. And what I love about the book of Revelation is that I've been studying it so much for the last three or four months. I mean, I have been in it, eat, drink, sleep. I even dream it. Like, I literally, I mean, I wake up thinking about, like, it's in my dreams of Revelation. Not that I'm getting visions from God. I'm not saying that. I mean, just dreaming about everything you've been putting in your mind and studying because you're studying 24-7 because it's just so rich. And, so, and what I'm amazed, what amazes me about the book of Revelation is that how many Old Testament prophets, how many Old Testament scriptures are full of it? Like if you're a, 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 a devout Jew, you could read the whole Old Testament, skip the New Testament, and pick right up with the book of Revelation and never miss a beat. Like it is like an extension of the Old Testament. It is so rich 
with culture and text, and that John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knows exactly how to pin a letter right to your soul, and right to your context, and right to your culture. And that's exactly what he's doing right here when he says, I'm the true one, the holy one, which means this. Holy just means to be set apart. Jesus says, out of all the gods, watch this, and the goddesses, I'm the one that's set apart. Like, I am the holy one. See, the Bible says, as Christians, we've been set apart. That means that we're holy. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you really feel like, though, you're not holy? I mean, most of us feel like, man, well, I mess up, I still blow it, I mess up, I make mistakes, I really don't feel holy, but holy literally means to be set apart. When God saved you, he set you apart as his family. We're not to look like this world. We're supposed to be different than this world. We're supposed to be distinctive. We're supposed to stand out and set out because we have been set apart. Jesus says, I'm the one who is set apart. And watch this, he says, I am true. There's none of these fake gods and goddesses. I am the one true God. I am, listen, you are monotheistic. You only serve one God. I know there's Dionysus and there's Zeus and there's all, you know, all these other God and goddesses, but I'm the one. I'm the true, true God. Watch this. Who has the key of David. Now, let me help you here if you're studying your Bible. If you're reading things like this, especially through the book of Revelation, and a lot of people wanna stay away from it. I was sharing with the guy earlier, right between services. I said, you know what? I said, I thought, and I've been saved now for 24, 25 years, and I said, you know, I wish someone would have set me down when I was a new believer and walked me through the book of Revelation. It's usually the last book we take somebody to because we think there's so many imagery and they should be mature enough in their faith and understand the Bible more before they get there. I think that would have radically changed my whole perspective. And I think when you jump in this and you see this and you read the key of David, the first thing now as a Bible student in your mind, you should say, what is the key to David? Has the Bible ever mentioned the key of David before? And if so, where? And you could go right now to BibleGateway.com. It's a free, it's free. It has all Bible translations. And you can search any words in the Bible within a nanosecond. And you can put in parentheses or quotation mark, key of David, click, search, and see. Is there any place in the Bible that's mentioned this? And at your fingertips right now, what took Jews years and years and years to memorize the whole Old Testament, memorize the, the books of the Bible, you can know in a nanosecond. And when you do, you come and you find out there is <clears throat> one other place. And it's found in the prophet Isaiah's writing. In fact, it's found in Isaiah 22. And in Isaiah 22, there's this guy named Shebna. And Shebna is the steward of the palace. He has the keys to unlock all the resources in all of the palace. He's the manager, and no one else can get in, and no one else can get out without his keys. Well, Shemna said, you know what? Even though I'm just a steward, I manage the resources, I'm gonna do something. You see those mountainsides over there that has tombs in them? That's only for the very wealthy, well-known people. And you can go Google the tombs in the side of a mountain, or I like to say the Lord of Ring fields. I love that, man, I'm so, I'm just in it right now. And so, and you could Google it and you could see it. And there's these tombs that are built and carved into the side of mountains for wealthy, very prominent people. Well, Shebna was stealing money from the resources, and he was coming over here and he was prepaying his burial tomb so that when he died, he would be buried up on the mountain with all the wealthy, established, well-known people. Well, we know God, and you can't hide nothing from God. So God sees this, 
And he says, I'm gonna deal with Shebna for doing this. In fact, I'm gonna put Elohim, or Elohim in his place, and Elohim is a picture of the Jesus, the one to come. And I'm gonna like him to be, watch this, the keeper, the steward with the keys of David's. And we see in Isaiah 22 too, look what happens right here. John, brilliant, brilliant, quotes this Old Testament passage in the opening of the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Look what he says. Then I will put the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. The exact same heading that John pins to the church in Revelation is the exact same quote that Isaiah said for the messianic term, that I'm gonna lay the key of David upon him, which is a messianic term, which means Jesus the Messiah, he has the power to open doors and close doors. Now, if you know that, right, you, you would have known that as a Jew, you would have heard that, because that's a messianic term, and now you get a letter from Jesus going, I am the one who holds the key of David. You think that your city is a doorway and a gateway? I am the one who opens the doors, and I am the one that closed the doors. So now when you're studying your Bible, you says, what doors is he opening, which he's closing? Well, in my opinion, I think there's two here. One, salvation. Jesus has opened the door to salvation. There's no other way you can be saved. He, he's the way, he's the truth, and the life. He's not a way, he's not even the best way. He's the only way. The only way. He says, I am the key, and I have, I have the key to open up to the kingdom. And I've opened up my kingdom to whosoever believes and repent of their sin can come. And I wanna tell you this morning, I beg you, I literally, I have no problem to beg you. I beg you to give your life to Jesus before the door's shut. You have breath right now, which means the door is open to you. Your door could close today. Your life could be gone today. Jesus could come back today. Right now, the door is open. He has the key to open that door. And when it's open, nobody can shut it. The devil can't shut it. You can't shut it. Listen, a, a, a war in Israel can't shut it. Nothing can shut that door. But once it's shut, nothing can open it. He is the one who has the key on his throne, on his shoulder of David. This is a messianic term. But not only that, when you see about open doors to the New Testament, it was always an opportunity for ministry. It was always an open door to serve God in ministry. We see this in 1 Corinthians 16. Look what it says, Paul writes this. For a wide door for effective service, effective ministry has been opened to me, but there are many, many adversaries. There are many people opposing me. I'm getting spiritual warfare because I've opened this door. And I would say to you, that's one indication you're probably on the right track when God opens the door and you walk through it and you're getting spiritual warfare all around you. Because remember we talked about last week? Satan don't bother a dead church. And Satan ain't messing with a dead Christian or they think they're alive. Remember, you think you're alive but you're not alive because you're not being effective for the kingdom. But you start stepping out for Jesus at school, you start stepping out for Jesus in your workplace, you start stepping out for Jesus in our culture and all of a sudden you got all these oppositions and adversaries and you guess what? You're probably on the right track. And every single person, listen, you have an open door right now. People sitting there praying, I'm just praying, Brother Daniel, that God will just open a door. Are you kidding me? 
I see open doors everywhere. Like, I mean, there are doors completely open for ministering opportunities in your workplace, in your school, in your locker room. Listen to me, at home, with your family, you've got so many open doors. Peter's like, I'm just praying, I'm just sitting and waiting, being patient for God to open a door for me, sir. Are you kidding me? Listen, pray and ask God to open a door, then jump. Start doing something. Start moving. Well, I'm just waiting. I don't know if it's the right door. Is it a door yet? Well, walk it out until he closes it. You see, I always tell people, people pray, pray for open doors. I don't pray for open doors. I pray for God to close doors. If you don't see an open door in your life, let's meet and talk about it. I, I promise you, we can find one. There's an open door somewhere in your life that Jesus has opened for you to do ministry if you're a child of the God, if you're a child of the King. There's a, there's a door for you that has been open. I mean, me and my wife, we had so many open doors in front of us, and sometimes, watch this, the doors were closed. But we didn't know that, so we walk it out. And so we're going down the road, and here's how I feel like. We're going down the road and realize it's not the way, and I said, oops, we're in a cul-de-sac. And of course, my wife and I were completely different, we're wired different. She goes, look how much time we wasted. I said, look how much we've learned. Because we're different. We learned this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to go. But we wasted time. But look what we learned. We're just different. We see it differently. And so we start going around. We thought, let's build a house over here. Let's move to this city. Let's, let's do this over here. We should buy this over here. Let's keep walking out, walking out. And God shuts that door and turns around. Well, guess that's not it. Well, oh, we could sit and pout in the cul-de-sac. Honey, we dismissed it. We're not spiritual. I'm like, no, let's find another one. Let's go back down the road. Let's keep on walking until God opens or closes the door. What I'm trying to say is quit waiting around for God to do something. He's already done it and make it happen. See, that's so specific to this, this little city because this is Philadelphia. It's the door. It's the gateway. Listen, and history tells us because of this church right here in Philadelphia that the gospel went east all the way to India because of this. God opened a major, major door for this little tiny church to make a difference all the way to India. So you have open doors all around you, and God will open them, but then God will close them, and when he closes them, say, thank you for closing them. Like, I am so thankful that I did not marry my high school sweetheart, that God closed that door. Right, you meet all these 12 year olds, I'm in love, oh, I'm in love. You don't even know what love is. Are you kidding me? I'm thankful that God closes doors. I'm thankful he shut things. I'm thankful he did not give me what I asked for. And he shut the door. That don't make me question God. That makes me think, thank God that that's not it. That's one thing, not let's go this direction. You see what I'm saying? This is the place where you can open, God says, and I can close doors in your life. Verse eight, I know your deeds. See, God knows everything about you. You can't hide from him. He knows everything you do. I know your deeds, and behold, I've put before you an open door which can never be shut. No one can shut this door because you have little power, have followed my word, and have not denied my name. So we know historically here, the open door was the gospel went east to India. So God opened this little tiny church with no resources, no power, he did not condemn them whatsoever, and God used the small church to take the gospel all the way to India. Is that not amazing? He says, I have an open door for you that no one can shut. So me, as a Bible student, I scratch my head and says, what was it about this church that God opened the door for them? Why did God open the door for them? Why didn't he do it for Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Ephesus? Why didn't he do it for these big prominent cities, not this young, small, little powered church? Why? Well, then he tells you why. He says, because you have little strength, which means little power. You followed my word, 
and you have not denied me. You see, some of you right now, if you see, God uses the lowliness, not the arrogant and the proud. He pulls down them. Like if you're sitting here right now, and if this is your story, God can't use me. Pastor, you don't understand what I've said, what I've tried, what I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know my, my family situation. You have no idea, man. You, I'm just lucky to even be alive. Like, I am a mess. Like, you, you have no idea. There's no way God can use me. I am such a basket case. I mean, I'm telling you what, my whole, I don't even know if I'm coming and going. You have no idea. There's no way God can use me. Listen, if that describes you, you're the type of people God wanna use. In fact, I would say the more messed up, jacked up you are, the more greatly God could use you. The one who walks around going, why hasn't God called me yet? Why hasn't somebody used me yet? Why hasn't somebody asked me yet? Why have I not been doing it yet? God's like, oh, that's why, because you're proud. I'm gonna have to humble you before I exalt you. But this lowly church, this low power, it says here, this little strength, little power, has humbled themselves because they don't think they're great. And, they put, and what it means, it means to contend with weakness. And they see that, now I'm gonna show myself strong and open a door for them that no one can shut because they humble themselves. And he tells you why God opened doors and used them. And you could do the exact same thing today. You can humble yourself, you can follow his word, and not deny his name. And I promise you, I promise you right now, if you will do that, if, if you will leave here and you will humble yourself and you'll be committed to follow his word and you do not deny his name, I promise you he will open up doors for you like you can even imagine. You have open doors all the way around you for God to use you greatly or insignificantly, you may think. So quit waiting around going, I gotta get cleaned up and shaped up and before God can, and a door open up before God can use me. Are you kidding me? God is ready to right now to use you. Just like he did this church. Verse nine, behold, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now there's so much here to jump into this. We talked about synagogue of Satan, we talked about Pergo, and in that context he was talking about the, uh, the God of Dionysus in that context because he talks about you know you go there and you have this sexual morality and all this drunkenness and he's, he's attacking that God which is the God, synagogue of Satan. And what I mean by this, watch this. Any false God is the synagogue of Satan. Whether it's Zeus, Dionysus, Diana, Caesar, Tiberius, whoever you worship, it's the false God. It's the synagogue of Satan. Well, these Jews, who act like Jews but claim not to be Jews because Jews were exempt in some things according to Rome, so sometimes they'll go, oh yeah, I'm Jew, and then around and say, oh no, I'm not a Jew today. And so these people have kicked the Christians out because Christianity was like a sect of the Jewish part in the first century, but now it's been kicked out. They kicked them out, and now they were doing things to them and said, listen, they think they're Jews, but really it's the synagogue of Satan. Anything that tries to stop God's will is the synagogue of Satan. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. And all these protesters you're seeing protesting all over the world who just, you know, pro-Palestinians and like anti-Semitic, listen, that is Satan all the way through and through. His goal from day one is to annihilate God's people, the Jews. He's doing everything he can then. He's gonna do everything he can now. This should not shock us. It shouldn't even alarm us. We should be alert, but should not alarm. Why? Because he already told this was gonna happen. Everything you're seeing right now, listen, we should bring Fox News and CNN because we got Democrats and Republicans here. I don't know what independents watch, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. You know, whatever. And we can sit down and say, listen, you're recording by this? Do you know he's already told us it was gonna happen? You should get your news from this. 
Like what we're seeing right now possibly could be the Psalms 83 war. For you who wants to go study prophecy, go read Psalms 83. It happened, it's a prayer, but could this be fulfilled and be happening again? It's amazing what's going on right before us. Anything that's trying to stop God's will will be the synagogue of Satan. And then he says in verse 10, because you have kept my word of perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly and hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, there's so much right here, we could have a whole entire sermon, but let me just for the next one minutes and 50 seconds, let me just walk you through this real quick. If we're thinking about context to the Church of Philadelphia, he said there's gonna come an hour of testing upon you, what could it have meant to them? Well, they're not prophetic, they don't know, but they're about to read the rest of the book of Revelation because they have the whole book of Revelation that the pastor gets to read them. What we're reading today to you, that's what they're reading then. Exactly word for word, exactly what they were reading. Now what happens next? Earthquakes and tremors. This was a valley that is on a fault line. And the Bible says someday an earthquake's gonna come and watch this, it's gonna devour so many people. It's right there ready to go, man. It's right there, the fault line in Western Turkey, right where the Bible promises all these things. So it could have been that. We know one of the largest, worst famines happened in the west part of Turkey that's coming their way. There's gonna be a testing coming your way. Could you survive this? That could be. We know about 1,200 years after this, Muslim jihadists come through Philadelphia and they behead all the Christians. Could Jesus been saying, listen, there's gonna be a time coming. You will be tested. An hour's coming, persevere, stand firm. Could Jesus have been giving them that insight? Because they didn't know the future. We can look back historically and see what would have happened because we have on this side of history, but they didn't. Or could it have been that Jesus says, watch, there's a time of testing coming with the tribulation. You're about to read about it. Your pastor is about to read this to you. You think it's hard for you to understand the book of Revelation. Watch this. They were about to read it 2,000 years ago. Exact same paper with same pages we have today. They would have understood the Old Testament quotes way better, but they didn't understand how the future would have worked out. Or is it talking about the tribulation coming, he says, and again, and we talked about this on, on Wednesday nights, and again, I wasn't being trying to be dogmatic about it. Everybody has their different points of view on this. I believe that the rapture will take place before the tribulation, which means it can happen at any moment, any second right now. It can happen right now. I mean, right now the Lord could do it. There's nothing else needs to be fulfilled if you believe that it's happening before the tribulation. But he says right here that I will keep you from the hour of testing. He didn't say I will keep you through the hour of testing, which I would interpret that the rapture would take place before that great wrath and tribulation takes place. Now, I could be completely wrong. I wasn't living at the, I don't know how they would perceive that. But it's either earthquakes and famine, Muslim jihadists are coming in and they're gonna behead you all 1,200 years from now, or there's gonna come an hour of testing. But as a church, I will keep you from it, not take you through it the tribulation that's taking place. 100%, no one can definitely know 100%, but it has to be one of those for the future of it. And then lastly, and this was so, this is so, so good, man, how John and Jesus through John writes this to the church. Look what he says. Then the one who overcomes, 
I will make him a pillar. What do you know about pillars if you live in this city? Man, are they stable? Will they fall? They're still standing. They must be strong. He said, look what he says. I'm gonna make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And we know that in the Old Testament, the, two, the, pillar had, the, the temple had two pillars and they were names and we could get into all that, a whole another whole story. But I'm gonna make you a pillar in my temple. Is that not amazing? I'm gonna make you one of these strong pillars that still stands in the midst of uncertainty and instability in your life. You can still be a pillar with me. I'm gonna make you a pillar and he will go out, watch this, he will not go out from it anymore. See what he's saying? You guys have been so scared. You go into the synagogue of the city, you're afraid that tremor's gonna come, the temple's gonna fall with the pillar's hole, and you run right back out into the streets and you run back into the farmland, but then you say, okay, we gotta get to the synagogue, we gotta get, is it stable? With the, this was a place where if I walk in the building, the ceiling's gonna fall on me. That's this church, okay? Like, will that happen? And then you get a letter saying, wait a second, but I'm gonna make you a pillar, and you're gonna be strong. In fact, there's four promises in this passage right here. I will make you a pillar. And then he says this, I will write on him the name of my God. Look what he says. He will not go out for me anymore. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, my new name. There are four promises right here. I'm gonna make you a pillar and I'm gonna put on you my name. Now listen, you're in a city who don't even know their name. Are we Philadelphia? Are we Flavians? What are we today? Are we the new Caesarea? What, what, what are we? Wait, wait, wait. I'm gonna brand you and I'm gonna mark you and you're gonna be as strong as one of these pillars and when someone like did something or really famous, they would etch their name on the pillar. He goes, and I'm gonna put my name on you. You know, the one that holds the key to David. You know, the messianic one to come. You know, the holy one, the true one, that you read hold the seven stars in their hand, whose words is like a two-edged sword. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's me, and I'm gonna put my name on you. And not only my name, I'm gonna put, which means ownership. If a name's been branded to you, that means they own you. So I'm gonna strengthen you, I own you, and watch this, even the new Jerusalem, which I talked all about that last Wednesday night, even the new Jerusalem, watch this, you now have an eternal citizenship in my kingdom. I know you don't know Philadelphia of who you are, what you are, if you're on the roll or not. And listen, and now I read some historical stuff or listen to it, that your name could be blotted out of the registry if you didn't. I just wonder if Jesus speaks and says, I will never blot your name out of the book. You will always be eternal citizen in my kingdom. I won't blot your name out like they do. Like Rome, no, no, I won't blot your name out of this book of life. And then he says, I will put Christ's new name, which means this, that's something we don't know, which means we have not received the fullness of God yet, but when we go to heaven, we will have the fullness and the mind of Christ and we will know. But until then, I'm gonna give you hope and a promise. I will strengthen you, you are mine, you have eternal citizenship in my kingdom and when we get there you have all eternity to get to know my son Jesus is that not amazing to this small little church how it speaks today so pastor what are you trying to say summarize this for me here's what I'm trying to say you can do anything when Jesus is your everything when Jesus is your everything you can do anything 
And God used this small, humble church to be a door and a gateway because God opened up the door with the key because he's the Messianic king. He could do that to take the gospel to India through this church. And then my final, final verse, 13. The one who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I'm gonna ask you what to bow your heads. I beg you today to give your life to Jesus. He is in this place and he loves you so much. He's opened the door for you or you wouldn't be here. I'm not talking about playing church. I'm not surrendering your life to Jesus because you never know when that door will be shut. You know, I was reading the story of Noah and the Bible says in the end days, in the last days, it will be like before the flood that people will be living like in the days of Noah's. I think we've succeeded, I mean, we've passed that. I mean, our culture's crazy, y'all. And they all made fun of Noah, who's never even seen rain. But he humbled himself, he kept God's word, and he did not deny him. And I often wonder, the day they begin to rain, God tells Noah to his family to go into the ark. I wonder how many people ran to the ark and begged to be let me in, let me in, let me in. And I often thought, how in the world could Noah shut the door? I don't know if you've ever visited the ark, it's just an hour and 15 minutes away from here in Moorhead. I'd encourage you to go. As I walked through it and I saw the door, I saw how big that door was. And I stood there. And I thought, I thought before, how can Noah have on his conscience that he shut the door when thousands and thousands of people wanted to get in? And as I kept reading in Genesis, you know what it says? It says, God shut the door, not Noah. God did. And there's gonna come a day where God will shut the door in your life. And it will be too late. I have no problems begging you on this side of eternity to give your life to Jesus before it's too late. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for how relevant your word is and how it speaks to us even today. God, may we be like the Church of Philadelphia. And God, we would humble ourselves and follow your word and not deny your name. And God, that you would open up doors for us in this ministry, in this area, in this region. And God, we would take the gospel into all the highways and the hollers and 
whatever it takes, Lord, to get the good news to the people around us. You hold the key. And we ask you to open those doors. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we ask and we pray. Amen.